Well, good morning, everyone. It's a beautiful morning again. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a Father's Day message. But it definitely, it, uh, it relates to fathers and to mothers, young people, whoever. Yeah, I guess. Um, I'll, I'll speak to John. Maybe he can get us one next week. But uh, it might be also some of the things I've used, notes from previous messages. I just felt I need to go in this direction and uh, <clears throat> just speak on it. Because I, I feel... Again, it's a, it's a much-needed message, especially in the way that we live and how we conduct ourselves with one another. Things like that. It's entitled Esteeming One Another. And uh, it's just a challenge for me, a challenge in my own home, with my own brothers and sisters, the people that I interact with. And just... This simple phrase of esteeming one another higher than ourselves. Uh, before we begin, let's pause for a word of prayer. I think we can stand. Father, we again bow before you. Thank you for who you are to us. We thank you that you are good. You are kind, you are loving, you are just, you are holy, Lord, and that we can have a relationship with you. And out of that also comes forth a relationship with one another that is that we carry on, Father, to be the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. Lord Jesus, we just invite you into our presence, into our midst, into our lives, our hearts, our minds, that we may see things through your eyes, that we may see people through your eyes, Lord, and just uh, bless them and encourage them along the way. Lord Jesus, just help us to indeed think each day on how we can esteem others, how we can bless and encourage others who walk with us. Lord, we know it's not always easy, and uh, we just want to pray again that you'll be with us and walk with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as esteeming one another has to do with our relationships, that will be most of my focus today, speaking this morning. And in that, we have to ask ourselves the question, how are our relationships then with one another? Are we esteeming each other as the Bible challenges us to do? What makes a relationship function in a peaceful, harmonious way? Are we even trying to build relationships and friendships? Or is it more just tolerating one another? Do we have a mentality that I'm here right now 
in my present place, so I'll just have to put up with it and put up with the people around me. But I feel that loving relationships are not just important. They are essential to maintaining unity and love amongst ourselves. As Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 say, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. But, like we know, beautiful relationships, and if you think about it, think about people that you have a close relationship with, it's always a giving and a taking from both sides. It is not a one-sided, selfish expectancy. Those relationships will never last. It's not a high expectancy that we have in our mind of how we think others should act and when they should and when they interact with us uh, but on the contrary we ourselves are not meeting those expectations on our part. So in the beginning from creation on the, uh, of the earth God has sought a relationship with his children. We can see this in the Garden of Eden. Even with Adam and Eve, that beautiful picture of God himself coming in the cool of the evening, walking with them, talking with them. And you just sometimes long for that. It's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. You wonder how it was like. And in saying that, our relationship as a Christian is always first vertical. A relationship with, a God, with God as our Father. God formed us as relational beings. We have relational needs. We always hear the saying, like David spoke about, that the void within us cannot be filled by anything other than our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And I feel in my short life, it is absolutely true. As much as we try to satisfy those carnal desires within us sometimes, we tend to always be left with that same empty feeling. It's exactly like Solomon said, it's like chasing after the wind. And it seems that a lot of us take longer to learn that lesson. That to know and have a personal relationship with Christ is what really matters. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and strength. To love our neighbor as ourself. We all know the importance that Christ put on that. It's a lot to meditate on. To love, the God, love our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And both of these are very relational focused indeed. So I want to focus a lot today on our horizontal one, our relationship with one another. And I do indeed feel that if our vertical relationship with our Heavenly Father is lacking, then it will most definitely affect our horizontal relationships with each other. And it's, 
if this if that relationship is not there, I often think, what what do we have to give? We basically have what the world gives, which is just books on how to better ourselves and how to get along with each other. But the deep spiritual insights that we share with each other, the revelations that God gives us, is what deepens our relationships and our trust for each other. So relationship is defined as the way in which two or more people, groups, countries, etc., talk to, behave toward, and deal with each other. So I want to begin by, I want to go through a few attributes that I feel are important to maintaining a good relationship. And I'm sure we can add many more, but those are the ones that I, I shared, or I'll share on today. And first one is love and compassion. The second one is trust. The third one is esteem or honor. The fourth is communication. The fifth is encouragement. And I want to go through these and uh, see where they're at, where we're at with them. The first one, love. I know a lot can be said about how love acts in a relationship. I'm sure we just scratched the surface. But, of course, we want to begin by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 3, uh, chapter 13, 4 to 8, or we'll read the whole chapter. Yeah, old passage there. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profited me nothing. Charity suffered long and is kind. Charity envied not. Charity vaunted not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, Think it no evil, rejoice it not in iniquity, but rejoice it in the truth. Bear it all things, believe it all things, hope it all things, endure it all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether they be, there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall pass, vanish away. I'll stop there. What is a good practice to do, I found, is if you, when you read through this, to put your name there wherever it says love. That kind of sounds a little different. If you would try it, it would say, Samuel suffers long and is kind. Samuel does not envy. Samuel does not parade himself. Samuel is not puffed up. Samuel does not behave rudely. Samuel does not seek his own. Samuel is not easily provoked. Samuel thinks no evil. Samuel does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Samuel bears all things, 
Samuel believes all things, Samuel hopes all things, and Samuel endures all things. Love never fails. Now, if we would treat people in every situation with this kind of love all the time, I wonder if we would even have any relationship problems. I feel if these verses would be our guide every time we speak or interact with each other, I wonder then how much it would affect our relationships in a positive way. And if we would take these verses and start putting them into practice, I wonder how our relationships would grow. Richard, I'll share a picture with you. I want you to put it up. So this picture here, I have a story that goes with it. It's the story of the elephant man. And uh, the elephant man tells the true story of John Merrick. Merrick was born in the slums of England in 1862 and almost from birth experienced massive rejection due to his grotesque appearance. Merrick suffered abnormalities that resulted in a large and severely misshapen head, loose, rough skin, and twisted arms and legs. His mother loved him dearly, but died when he was 10. His new stepmother didn't take to him, and at 12, he was expected to work to contribute to the family finances. After two years working in a cigar shop, he was dismissed because his deformities meant he could not keep up the required pace. His father found him a job, of all things, as a door-to-door salesman. This only accentuated Merrick's self-loathing. When people opened their doors and saw him, people would literally scream and slam the door in his face. Those who knew who he was refused to answer their doors. After this failure, Merrick's father began beating him. Merrick wound up on the street and was rescued by a kindly uncle, the only person who would help him out. Not wishing to further his uncle, not wishing to burden his uncle Merrick, his uncle Merrick left to live in a squalid workhouse for drunks, cripples, and the mentally ill. His life was so miserable that he offered himself to a carnival owner as a sideshow act. Merrick was a hit. People would pay money to line up and observe him like some animal in a zoo. But the carnival finally provided him with with security and a place he belonged. It was while the sideshow was in London that Merrick met Dr. Frederick Treves. Disgusted by Merrick's treatment, Treves wanted to help. He gave Merrick his card but lost track of him. The police started clamping down on the sideshow, so Merrick was sent to Belgium to work in a sideshow there. But when Belgian police also clamped down, Merrick was forced to make his way back to England. As he limped down Liverpool Street Station, foul-smelling and misshapen, a crowd gathered simply to watch him. The police took him aside to sort things out, but Merrick's speech was so slurred by his deformities that they couldn't understand him. It was at this point Merrick showed them Dr. Treves' card. The police sent someone to get him, and Treves rushed back. He took Merrick back to London Hospital and began a newspaper appeal for funds to help Merrick. The response was very warm and soon sufficient that Merrick was able to have his own house on the hospital grounds with permission to live there permanently. Treves' care marked a real turning point for Merrick. 
At first, Merrick would act like a frightened child and hide when anyone came into his room. But over time, he began to engage in some conversation. Dr. Treves discovered that Merrick was in fact highly intelligent and sought to nurture his growth. Yet Merrick's greatest hurdle was still to come. All his life, Merrick had known only fear and rejection from women. They had literally run from him. So Dr. Treves asked a widow he knew if she could come into Merrick's room, smile at him, and shake his hand. When she did, Merrick broke down into a ball of tears, later telling Treves that she was the first woman in his life apart from his mother to have showed him kindness. That was a breakthrough moment for Merrick. In the coming years, more and more people, women included, would meet him and show him kindness. He began meeting countesses and duchesses. He even had many visits and letters from the Princess of Wales, forming a friendship with her. Throughout this time, Dr. Treves reports uh, that Merrick changed dramatically. He began to develop some self-confidence to spend time traveling in the country and to discuss poetry with another new friend, Sir Doc, uh, Walter Steele. Merrick died in April 1890. His deformities had never allowed him to sleep lying down, as most people do. He had to sleep in a sitting position, his head resting on his knees. He apparently tried one night to sleep lying down to be more normal, and sadly dislocated his neck and died. Merrick's story shows us the power of love and what acceptance can do. Rejected all his life, treated as a thing. It was the loving welcome of others that liberated him to become all he could be. His life was made tragic not by his deformities, but by the response people made to him, to them. So love and compassion changes things. It can change people. And there is something in us that generally tends to avoid people like this somewhat even run from a person like this because of their outward deformities. But as I think about this story, the question is, what would happen if people could sometimes see what we really look like on the inside? What would happen if they could see what we think? Chances are, they would be shocked and run as well. Each one of us has deformities, perhaps not physically, but deformities within our character. None of us is a perfect human being that does and says everything right in every situation. We make many mistakes and say many things that, not, that ought not to have been said. What true love is, is to look past a person's character deformities and seek Christ in them and seek to build and encourage that life of Christ to grow in them. And our example is Christ in this. How did he treat us? And I always circle back to this truth. The older I get, the more I get to know Christ, this one thing becomes more evident, that without Christ, we have and can do nothing. Whatever good thing or overcoming power we possess came from and still comes from his hand. 
given to us because we choose to continuously humble ourselves before him. And let's not pretend that we're not capable of committing the vilest crimes. It's only because of Christ's abiding presence and our abiding in him that that keeps us. So I just want to bring that out, that no matter who we think we are and how how smart we think we are and how many revelations we've received from God, there's one truth to it. They came from his hand. They come to us because he loves us, not because we are something, but we choose to serve him. So God never simply says he loves us. He demonstrates us, demonstrates it. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It is this agape love that he enables and calls us to extend towards others. The true definition of love. Too many people believe and sometimes teach that love is a feeling or emotion. Yes, feelings and emotions are involved in love, but the greatest part of love is action-oriented. Love is a verb. What you do more than a noun, a feeling. So imagine if Christ, just before the cross, went to the garden and thought, you know what, I hate this feeling. I don't like doing this. Therefore, I will base my decision upon what I feel. If that had happened, we all know what would have happened to us. The good news, of course, is that Jesus resisted and fought back his feelings, and even though he prayed three times, that the cup be removed. He was more interested in doing the will of the Father than what he felt doing, like doing, thankfully. So the bottom line is that love is what a person chooses to do, not what a person chooses to feel. God so loved the world because he felt like it? Yes, he does love us, but that love required action. And that included the supreme sacrifice of his only son's life. That was the ultimate love in action. So I want to go on now to trust, which is the assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. I have a writing here I'd like to read. I felt he put a pretty good perspective on trust. And he basically uh, gives three options for trust. The first one is people should not be trusted. Surprisingly, the Bible doesn't talk about trust as much as you think that it would. The overwhelming majority of scriptures about trust are aimed at or pointed or pointing our trust towards the Lord and away from possessions, power, and especially other people. 
the text is almost completely silent on the subject of how two human beings who have a sinful nature can develop a relationship of trust between one another. In fact, the only place the scripture tells us to place our trust is in the Lord. We are never commanded to trust other people. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, people are described as wicked, unjust, lovers of self, malicious, prideful, corrupt, murderous, deceitful, manipulative, unfaithful, and altogether foolish. Even in the New Testament, we have plenty of examples of Christians who aren't trustworthy. So it seems to be completely rational to believe and operate under the assumption that people should not be trusted. No matter how good a person's track record may be, there's no guarantee that any one person will remain trustworthy in each and every instance of his life. The Lord is the only one who is worthy of our trust, so we should place it in him completely. Man has nothing to offer us but heartache and destruction. Trusting another human being, no matter what his or her track record, seems to be an irrational, even reckless course of action. So that's, the, that's your first option. We can go with that one. Number two, people can be trusted. On the other hand, the Bible speaks of men who are regarded as trustworthy. It outlines characteristics so that a trustworthy person can be recognized and placed in a position of leadership. In spite of their failures, characters like Abraham, Moses, David, and Paul are held up as men after God's own heart. They lead God's people in his way of righteousness in spite of their own humanity, and they are grateful for it. In fact, once we get to the book of Acts and the birth of the church, we find plenty of examples of men leading in such a way that the church prospers and God is glorified by it. Were it not for these men, Peter, Paul, James, Barnabas, Stephen, and Timothy, and more, the church would not have gotten off the ground. None of these men acted corruptly, nor did they use their influence for their own selfish gain. Furthermore, each of these men stay the course and remain faithful to the Lord until they die, either of old age or become martyrs for the faith. So while it seems reckless to trust any human being at all, we have sufficient evidence that there are some people who at least can be trusted. We are given character qualities to look for and promote in these people, perhaps with the expectation that we will be comfortable trusting them if they embody such characteristics. The Bible doesn't seem to consider trusting such men to be reckless or illogical. In fact, these leaders are worthy of honor, respect, and obedience. Simultaneously, the Bible makes no assumption that the behavior of these men will be without sin. While it seems to go against every logical reason we understand, it seems that in the New Testament we begin to have sufficient evidence that people can be trusted. And number three, the third option, people must be trusted. The most convincing argument for trusting other people comes not from whether or not a person is trustworthy, but from the consequences of trusting no one. Even if we have been deeply hurt by another human being or humiliated, we are not to give up on our trusting of other people. When suspicion, mistrust, withdrawal, isolation, and cynicism seem like the trustworthy option, we will find that sin, not righteousness, is at our doorstep. We know that our enemy is always at work to divide and isolate Christians from Jesus and from one another. He will make sure bitterness remains unconfessed so that reconciliation seems impossible. 
and self-justification can reign instead. He will work hard to use mistrust to keep believers divided and isolated from one another so that they think that they themselves are the only safe place they have left. There is not there not only does trust seem impossible, but so also does redemption. It is a place of hopelessness, just his kind of paradise. The only logical reason that we not only can trust untrustworthy people, but that we must work to trust them is this. If we give up on trusting people, we give up on the possibility of redemption altogether. If I give up on redemption for someone who has broken my trust, I simultaneously give up my own hope of redemption. Working to trust someone again, no matter how badly they may have broken our trust before, is a tremendous demonstration of the reality of the gospel and faith in God who can still lead a person out of darkness and into the light. Trusting an untrustworthy person is something we do every day. Why are we pretending that it's so difficult to do? Instead of looking for reasons to condemn, we should be looking for opportunities for redemption, not because we're naive, but because we believe in the power of the gospel that can save the sinner and reconcile enemies. Instead of looking for reasons to isolate ourselves from untrustworthy people, we should be looking for chances to achieve unity, once again, not because we condone untrustworthy behavior, but because we believe that the power of the gospel is able to transform any life, anytime, anywhere. So instead of assuming that broken trust will never be the same, we should be expecting to rebuild trust, that rebuilt trust will be stronger than the broken trust ever could have been. Not because our hurt wasn't real or our pain wasn't legitimate, but because we believe in the healing power of the gospel, not just for the sinner, but also the victim of the sin. So, in the messed up and broken relationships between untrustworthy human beings lies the very place where the gospel is the most relevant and powerful. Where broken trust has destroyed relationships and inflicted pain, there the gospel gives us hope of rebuilding. When we work to trust others, we are joining in the power of the gospel that is also working to make all things new. I felt... He did an excellent job of explaining this. You basically have these three options to work with. And you can choose each, whichever one you want. So we trust in our Heavenly Father. We trust in Him. And this past year, I've been doing a whole lot of trusting that God is out for my good. He is, not, he is not trying to hurt me, even though it feels that way a lot of times. But you still have to come to this place, just like you said, that we need to trust. We need to come to a position where we understand that God is working every brother and sister's heart life to draw them unto himself and the thing is here's one thing that kind of it levels the playing field a little bit if you would ask if I would ask you what you're struggling with in your life we would probably most likely see 
that each of us are struggling and dealing with very similar issues. They just look a little different. But we trust that God is in control, that he is working in every person's life, and he has not abandoned us. And uh, in a position of leadership, I often run across in the, in the things that I do, um, the responsibilities I have. In taking everything that we've read before, you come across these 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 uh, these things that pop up throughout the day that look like discrepancies. They look like um, they are not right. And a lot of times you're faced with a decision there. Okay, what route do I take here? Do I first of all always think that this person is doing something untrustworthy? That he is trying to to uh, get around the system or do something to, to get his own way. But I found that most of the time, this is not the case. If you follow up on it, it was simply something that can be explained. That was perfectly okay. But if you choose to again and again go down that path of not trusting, and of always thinking, the worst, small things become a big problem. They become huge. And uh, it turns into just untrusting or not trusting. And we're all on a journey. And even if people sometimes take a route that even if I take a route that I shouldn't be taking, maybe it's a lesson that God is showing that person what they are doing and trying to show them, uh, teaching them a lesson of what it, uh, what, what, what's going on. So I don't have to lord over and control people's lives. Ultimately, every person will stand before God and give an account of their own life. It does not mean that I should overlook sin and not deal with it. But it means that when I do go to a brother or sister, point out a fault. It means that I should make sure that I'm not guilty of committing the same thing. And that making sure that this is not in my life. And to not come with this condemning attitude that says that, he or she, what he or she did will never and could never happen to me. Because it can. And we always have to remember that. So, people know, have this general sense of whether you trust them or not. And uh, of what it looks like and how it acts. And it builds up relationships in a good way, if we do. So we're going to go on to esteem, honor, and respect. It says to think very highly or favorably of someone. It says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. I have a story here. <clears throat> it goes like this. 
When I was a young university student, I attended a small church where many college students worship. One day while attending a leaders meeting, where several issues were being discussed, I began to express my views about the subject under discussion. I didn't realize how long I had been talking until a fellow leader, who was older than I was, stopped me and said, Rick, would you please be quiet? No one else can get a word into this conversation because you have been talking nonstop. It may be hard for you to believe, but you're not the only person who has an opinion and who knows something. We all have ideas and opinions that are just as valuable as yours, and we'd like to express them. In my eagerness to provide input in the conversation, I didn't realize that I, that I had inadvertently dominated the entire meeting. Finally, this leader hadn't heard enough of me and kindly spoke up, telling me to be quiet so other people could express themselves. When I looked around the room at the other leaders, I realized they were all breathing a sigh of relief that someone had finally told me to be quiet. I was so embarrassed. In retrospect, I realized that because I was the youngest in the group, I was unconsciously trying to prove that I had something to contribute that was as important as what the, everyone else had to say. But in my efforts to prove my worth in the sight of those other leaders, I nearly took over the discussion, making it appear if I wanted to hog the whole conversation. Of course, this was not the greatest sh way to show that I had respect for other people. I didn't intend to give this impression, but... That was the impression I gave to others in that group. After that incident, I remember turning to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, and reading the words of the Apostle Paul. And he paraphrases. He says, Do not jockey for position or try to prove your importance to others with a lot of hollow, empty boasting and self-promotion. Instead, have a modest opinion of yourself, and learn to recognize the outstanding contributions that others have to impart. This is just an example. For Rick, it was the way in how he dominated the conversation. But for us, what is it for me? When I come into a job site, to a barn, school, into the kitchen, and just take over in such a way that others feel not needed or secondary, what happens? We devalue that person. And this can happen anywhere in our lives. It is esteeming others and valuing their gifts and what they can also contribute. And it may not be as flashy or as out there as, as we can contribute, but it's still something to contribute. In Mark 9, 33 to 35, he says, And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. By the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. So in order to esteem someone, the first thing that has to happen is that I have to lower myself. To look at my fellow man and respect what he has to say. To listen to his views and ideas without interrupting or trying to correct him or her immediately when they take a breath. Are we hearing what is on their hearts? 
Or are we always just thinking that it does not fit my pattern of thinking, therefore I reject it? It doesn't mean that I have to agree with everything, but there is a level of respect and honor. And we'll get into that also in the next uh, part with the communication part. In Philippians 2, verses 2 to 5, it says, if, therefore, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, of any comfort of love, of any fellowship of the Spirit, of any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, that nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also in the things of others. So communicate. Basically, to get someone to understand your thoughts and feelings or your, your, your viewpoints. Another short story, it's called the Dr. Fox Hypothesis. J. Scott Armstrong, associate professor of marketing at the University of Pennsylvania, has demonstrated in a series of tests for both written and spoken communication that people are impressed by experts from within their own field, even when what is said is completely unintelligible. Armstrong calls this the Dr. Fox hypothesis. Based on an experiment in which an actor posed as Dr. Myron Fox and delivered a lecture to a group of science professionals of Double Talk, patching raw material from a Scientific American article into non-sequiturs, and contradictory statements interspersed with jokes and meaningless references to unrelated topics. An an anonymous questionnaire was filled out afterwards in which the professionals reported that they found the lecture clear and stimulating. So, I guess so many times in our relationships, are broken because we do not rightly communicate our thoughts. We have a tendency to bottle up our hurts, and then when the right buttons are pushed, we let it all out. And we say things that we wish we hadn't said. We do things that we wish we hadn't done. Communicating also does something else. It lets people know what you're dealing and struggling with. Also, this this is in a sense of sharing with others, which in James 5.15 says, confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This is not easy. It's not easy to confess a sin and a fault. But when we confess our faults one to, to another, it helps people understand what we're going through. They lift us up in prayer. It can also be helped to overcome through other people's experiences and counsel. And I've experienced this quite a bit, like in our accountability groups with the, the brothers here, that it's such sometimes getting that off your shoulders and just having people pray over you is uh, a safe place to just share and to know that you will not be condemned and to communicate what's going on in your life. It's... It's a wonderful thing. Another thing communicating does, it brings to light things that we might not have known that we're doing wrong. 
or if somebody is offended by something that we are doing and are not aware of it. We need to communicate that and not let it fester and grow into a root of bitterness that will destroy a relationship. And the product of non-communication is most often distrust and distancing from somebody. And think of someone as your best friend. And I've personally experienced this, where you grew up with best friends. But the thing is, what would happen if the communication between you and your best friend stopped? It's actually very simple. You're no longer best friends. If the communication ceases, the relationship also ceases to be as close as it once was. And most of the time, a lack of communication causes people to fill in the blanks according to how they perceive the situation to be. I've seen this a lot. Instead of going to the source itself, we simply fill in the communication part that's lacking. And based on our view of how we like or dislike the person a lot of times. I've seen many instances of secondhand information being passed on, which then affects your way of thinking to the point of ruining relationships. And then when the truth is actually brought forth by the person you just want to, shake your head and wonder why you allow this to happen. Emperor Frederick is actually a true story. Ruler of the Holy Roman Empire wanted to find out man's original language. He reasoned that if infants never heard one word, they would speak in the language that was natural to them. So he arranged to have some newborn babies cared for by nurses who were instructed to maintain total silence in their presence. This was extremely difficult, but they obeyed. Within several months, all the babies were dead. You can actually look that up. Uh, pretty sadistic, but uh, it kind of shows us what non-communication can do in our own lives, either with our wives, our children, our fellow brothers. It can have a similar effect on our spiritual lives, that we simply die somewhat. Medical doctors report that a large number of patients come to see them not because of physical problems, but because they desire to have someone listen and care about them. The ultimate reason we want to communicate is so that we, we want to be understood and accepted for who we are. Many people experience the pain of not feeling understood by friends, family, brothers or sisters, or whatever, co-workers. In his book, Caring Enough to Be Heard, to Hear and Be Heard, David Ausberger makes this powerful statement. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. To say something you value deeply to another and to have him or her value it equally by listening to it carefully and appreciatively is the most universal way of exchanging social interest or demonstrating affection. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, said in this statement, he who can no longer listen to his brother will soon be no longer listening to God either. 
he will be doing nothing but prattle in the presence of God too. Christians have forgotten that the ministry of listening has been committed to them by him who was himself the great listener and whose work they should share. So we have to learn to communicate and listen in a way that Christ does, even with us. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And our last one, encouragement, is to make someone more determined, hopeful, or confident to inspire. Mark 1, 11. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. There came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Do our brothers and sisters hear our voice like this? I mean, if you can imagine it, what was the point of it all? Why did the heavens open and there was a word coming forward, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased? Because deep down, we want our own fathers to say this about us. And we want, we simply want others to speak this into our own lives. And uh, a person who always just brings negativity, and believe me, I'm very guilty of that myself, is you will not see the fruits that you're looking for. I'm sorry. It's just not there. If all we ever do is point out faults, and we should. I mean, we we should be doing that. But if this is all we do, we will not receive the results that we're looking for. And more than likely, it normally does not change. But I'm not saying this to just cause us to whatever... um, be discouraged uh, in speaking into other people's lives. But we know also what that can look like when someone who we care about and who we trust and who we love does it. So, Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, there be any praise, think on these things. And we look for Christ, and we encourage Christ in each person. And in that way, we can know where we came from, and we don't all have to be cookie cutters. Um, We're each unique. Each different, we have different tastes and ideas a lot of times, but we're all on a journey and we're children of God. 
and we lift each other up and encourage each other. Even little notes somewhere can brighten up somebody's day. And in closing, I just want to say, I realize relationships are hard work. They don't just happen. And I, I'd like to, I, I would, it's just, I don't know. It's hard to put it into words of how to come to the place where you actually feel like you're making a difference in someone's life through a, a relationship that matters, even in your own children's lives. And I know it's, it's not just about talk and about what we say. It's about the time that we spend and uh, what we do with them. But I also know one thing. God cannot change the person that you're pretending to be. We have to be real and honest about things. Because I've always thought that when we go... When we're finally that day is here and we're on the, the trumpet sounds and we're on our way to heaven, what will change about us? What is actually going to change? Is God just going to change everything about us that we're no longer an angry person, that we're no longer a bitter person, that we're no longer a selfish person? I don't, I don't think so. It's a transition of continuously working towards the character and the image of Christ here. Now, and if we see something that needs to be changed, we should be doing our utmost to change it in whichever way we can. So, I guess that's it. Thank you all for listening and God bless.